be looking at a rather long passage this morning in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 and going on through verse 31. I want to read in your hearing Acts chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. I'd like to ask Abe if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 17. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in, the, in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians that among those who were receiving the gospel, who were believing, there were not a whole lot of people who were, who were noble, who were noteworthy, who were of the upper class. And um, the history of the gospel that is, as it has moved out from Israel into the world has kind of illustrated the, the point that I think Paul makes there. And that is really smart people seem to have a problem with the gospel. Really brainy intellectuals and the gospel don't mix very well. The story is told of the friendship between the evangelist George Whitfield and uh, our, our own famous smart person, Benjamin Franklin. Whitfield traveled to the colonies a total of 13 times during his ministry during the First Great Awakening. And in those voyages, he became acquainted with Benjamin Franklin, and the two became friends. Benjamin Franklin liked George Whitfield, and he marveled at Whitfield's speaking ability. But Franklin makes it clear in his autobiography that he never gave Whitfield any hope in the thought that he believed what Whitfield was preaching. Benjamin Franklin was by no means a Christian. One time he attended one of Whitfield's sermons and he wanted to, he was always experimenting. That was what he was about. He was a scientist and he wanted to, he wanted to experiment with Whitfield's voice and to find out just how far it projected. Now Whitfield did not have the benefit of any audio enhancement equipment like we have today. Benjamin Franklin began walking backwards from Whitfield and he ended up walking nine city blocks in Philadelphia before he could finally no longer hear Whitfield. So there were those in the days of Whitfield, as there have been throughout history, intellectuals who are curious by this gospel that they hear, and some, sometimes somewhat impressed by the erudition, by the speaking, by the content even of what the preacher is saying. And that is what we're encountering here. After Peter's first sermon that we looked at earlier, the people were pierced to the heart and they cried out to Peter and to the disciples, what must we do to be saved? After Peter's second sermon, we read, but many who heard their message believed. After Peter's third sermon, nothing but skepticism and a little bit of awe, we read in, 
in verse 13. Now, as they, being the, the gathered rulers and elders and scribes of Israel, in other words, the powers that were, the intellectuals, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling. It's a wonder they didn't start walking backwards from Peter to see how far they could go and still hear his voice. They were marveling. Wow, what is this? These unlettered, untrained fishermen from Galilee, and yet they're speaking with such confidence, with such authority, and they recognized Peter and John as having been with Jesus. But there's no indication here within the Sanhedrin that any belief was rising up within the hearts and the minds of those who heard Peter and John. No, they marveled, but not for the benefit of their own soul. Literally, they called Peter and John unlettered idiots. That is actually the word that they're using, although in the time that it was used, it didn't mean what it means now. The first description, the unlettered, is a form of the word used for scribe. And so it's as if they were calling them scribes, except what they do is they put a little alpha in front of it, which negates the meaning. So we have the word, for example, atheist or apathetic an atheist, of course, is one who does not believe in a God, and someone who is apathetic does not care. And so this is a, an a-scribe. This is a non-scribe. Literally, that's what they're saying. These are non-scribes. They are unlettered. They, they haven't trained. They haven't been brought up in the school of the Torah. They haven't sat at the feet of a noted rabbi. They haven't gone to school. And so why would we be expecting to hear these unlettered unscribes quoting scripture at us and actually charging us with being the builders who reject God's cornerstone. This is, this is a marvel. And then they go on to call them literary, literally idiotai. Idiots. This is the word that we get the word idiot from. Although back then it didn't really mean what it means today it meant someone who, who cannot speak well, a babbler, someone who, who doesn't know how to say the right things. And the Greeks tended to consider everybody who wasn't a Greek an idiot. In fact, they consider their language to be nothing more than bar, 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 from which we get the word barbarians, which is what the Greeks called everyone else in the world who wasn't a Greek. They didn't know how to say it quite rightly. Now, this is a phenomenon that we have in our world today. We have it in the church. We have it in different denominations, where when someone else says something, and it, and it isn't quite said the way we want to hear it, we're uncomfortable. And sometimes those who are in authority consider the others to be babblers, literally idiots. So these are unlettered idiots. The same thing that's happening to Peter and John would happen later to Paul when he was on the Areopagus in Athens. And after he finished his sermon, there were many there who mocked him. What was this babbler saying? And then when he was giving testimony before the Roman governor Festus and King Agrippa, 
And he goes on to talk about the resurrection from the dead. Festus cries out, Paul, you are out of your mind. He says, your great learning has made you mad. The powers that be in this world, whether it's intellectual or political, have historically not received the gospel message well. And again, they may marvel at the ability of someone to, to, to preach well or to, to say things with confidence. Politicians, for example, marvel and, and appreciate when a particular preacher is able to command the attention of a lot of people. Because for the politician, of course, that's a lot of votes. And so you see an association between the state and the church throughout the history of the church that has not always been for the goodness and the growing of the kingdom, at least not the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The scribes and Pharisees would not believe the message that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. In their mind, they still held to that, that adage that we read in the Gospels, can anything good come out of Nazareth, Galilee? This, this was kind of a backwater. This is kind of a, in the United States, this, this would be the South, even though it was in the North. Okay? We read in John chapter 7, when the, the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the same group of men, are asking the man who was born blind, you know, how did this happen? How did this happen? And the man, really, he kind of scolds them. He said, this is a marvel. You know, here's a man who has healed a man who was born blind, and, and you don't know him, and you don't know where he's from. And then they responded and rebuked the man and said, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, have they? In other words, the, the important people in Judea haven't believed in him. Why would you? He says, they said, search and see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. Well, you wouldn't really have to search far. Isaiah 9, <laughs> Galilee of the Gentiles, a land that dwells in darkness, will see a great light. So even their own intellectualism, even their own religion blinded them. Prejudice is what we're dealing with here. Prejudice of man-centered intellectualism. Perhaps the leading advocate of that today is a man by the name of Stephen Hawking, considered perhaps one of the most intelligent men in the world living today, who has just this past year finally determined that we have no need of God. Thank you, Stephen. God, I guess, can take a vacation now because Stephen Hawking is determined we don't need him. But there's also a prejudice of established institutional religion. And if you study the history of the persecutions of the church, and we think of the persecutions that the early Christians suffered at the hands of Rome, and those were not continuous, they were chronic. And sometimes they were not even all that violent. But some of the most violent persecutions of professing believers throughout the last 2,000 years have been at the hands of the church and not of the state. Institutionalized religion, institutionalized education have equally responded violently and unbelievingly against the gospel. And even within our own evangelical world, conservative world, we have a hard time hearing the voice of God through others. 
We have a hard time, you know, who is this unlettered Pentecostal? Why, why would I read his book? Why would I listen to him? What, what could he have to say? Can anything good come out of Tulsa? Certainly no prophet shall arise from among the Baptists. There's that prejudice that we see whenever we gather together as human beings. It's, it's a manifestation of the residual sin that dwells in all of us. When we gather together, we like to be around people who speak the way we listen. And when we hear something different, we don't listen and we judge. Education is, is vital to a vibrant and growing faith. This was something that the reformers understood coming out of the Middle Ages, coming out of what are known as the Dark Ages, where the church continually, and I think purposefully, kept people in illiterate ignorance and instead gave them murals and stained glass and frescoes. The Protestant Reformation brought education. If people have a hard time understanding the Latin of the Bible, then let's translate it into English. Let's translate it into Bohemian. Let's translate it into Italian, into German, a language that they understand. Then let's teach them how to read. And the gospel of Jesus Christ spread rapidly from Germany, Switzerland, England, around the world. Education is vital to a growing faith, but education forms around unbelief, an impenetrable shell. The smarter an unbeliever gets, the harder it is to reach them with the gospel. Now, God can do anything. And with what is impossible to man is possible to God. But to explain a phenomenon that the church has experienced throughout the ages, education in unbelief creates an impenetrable shell that we cannot penetrate. The narrative, Luke's narrative of the book of Acts, is starting to bring the church not only into contact with the world, but now we begin to see the conflict as well. And this is going to be a very important thread through our study of the book of Acts, that as the church is in the world, it is in constant contact with the world and frequent conflict with the world. And the church throughout the ages has struggled with how to behave, how to relate with the world. In particularly, what is the relationship between the church and the state? What is our responsibility toward the government, toward the civil magistrate, and toward the civil law? In the next chapter, Peter lays down a clear principle for all the church to follow when he says in chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. Now many have taken that to mean that when we are believers, we have no obligation to obey man at all. But such a conclusion would violate other teachings from Paul and from Peter, where we are told to obey those who have authority over us, not only in the church, but Romans 13 teaches us that we are to be obedient citizens to the civil magistrate, for God has appointed him as well to be the keeper of the peace, to be the one who punishes evil and rewards good. Peter's response when they are threatened by the Sanhedrin no more to speak in the name of Jesus 
is an example of an act, what is called civil disobedience. Now, civil disobedience, as we're seeing in um, Charlottesville this weekend, is not always civil. And sometimes it can be quite violent. But by definition, civil disobedience is when the citizenry of a country who are by their citizenship bound to obey the government do not do so. Civil disobedience can take the form of strikes, of sit-ins, of protests, of marches. If it is peaceful civil disobedience, then it is to bring a message to the government that the people will not put up with this much longer. This is what Peter and John were doing. They were not threatening the government in return. They were simply saying, no, we're not going to obey your command. We are not going to bow to your threats. Now, what might have happened at that time, we tend to pass over. We see that Peter and John were released. But the Sanhedrin had the power to further imprison them. They had the power to punish them. And along with the Romans, because what Peter and John were doing could easily be called sedition and treason, they had the power to execute Peter and John. They did not do that. A modern Jewish scholar by the name of Klausner considers this to be the first mistake which the Sanhedrin made with regard to the disciples. He said this was the first mistake which the Jewish leaders made with regard to this new sect, and this mistake was fatal. Now this from a Jewish scholar who recognized historically that what the Sanhedrin should have done was to cut off the head of this new church very quickly, very summarily. Now, humanly speaking, that might have brought an end to this new sect. It had in the past, we read later in the book of Acts, the rabbi Gamaliel recounting others who had arisen and who had been destroyed and their movements had petered out and disappeared. And so it's somewhat of a marvel here. Now, we understand it as the providence of God, but it's somewhat of a marvel, humanly speaking, that the Sanhedrin still doesn't really understand what they're dealing with. They're in kind of a cloud of ignorance. Maybe they're still marveling that these two Galileans could speak so well and actually quote scripture. But they let them go. They release them. The state has the authority over our bodies. When Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear the one who has the power over your body, he was speaking of the state. He was speaking of the government. Those who do have the power. Now we in America in the 21st century, we don't believe that because we're a democracy. And we believe that, that we have the control of our government. And we are blessed with tremendous liberty and freedom in this country. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand that many of our brethren in the world don't have that. Many other nations in the world do not have the freedoms that we do. And this concept of the, the human citizen being in the physical control of the government is a very real fact in the life of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people in the world today. And it is the consistent fact of history. Our state today does not physically persecute us for our faith but they could. I hope they don't, 
I don't think any of us long for a day of persecution to come back, but they could. They have the power to do so, and they could. We derive our heritage from the Reformation of the 16th century. And when you read the writings of Martin Luther, of John Calvin, of John Knox, and of others, you, you see a higher view of the integrity of the state than we hold here in the United States. So we have our heritage from the Reformation, but really when it comes to politics, our direct ancestors were not so much the Lutherans or the Reformed or the Zwinglians, but rather the Anabaptists, a sect that was persecuted then, and many of whom came to the colonies of North America to escape that persecution. And what they brought with them is an, a distrust of the state. John Calvin represents what is known as the Magisterial Reformation. These were the reformers who, who had that idealistic view still of a union between the church and the state. And John Calvin says a civil government has as its appointed end to cherish and protect the outward worship of God, to defend sound doctrine of piety and the position of the church. This was a view that was held for many centuries after the Reformation. Preachers preaching that the state has as its primary duty to protect the position of the church. And in many of the lands of the Reformation, the church and the state became essentially one entity. In Luther's Germany, in Anglican England, in Knox's Scotland, and even in many of the colonies here in America, there was but one church and all other adherents to different forms of Christianity were banished or punished. Religious toleration was not something that came from the Reformation. The biblical teaching on our relationship between the church and the state is very complex. And that's proven by the fact that no one agrees on it. And in no generation of the church have Christians uniformly responded to the state in the same way. But I think the biblical teaching is clear on a couple of points. First of all, we are to obey. Second point, unless obeying the state contradicts a divine command. Then, third point, we are to disobey. And throughout most of our history, fourth point, we are to die. Sounds like an easy plan, doesn't it? Obey unless, disobey, die. That is what the church has done throughout the ages. When the church disobeys the government, it has generally suffered persecution. But we live in an age where the church has divided into, into two different camps, primarily. One camp says that we are to disobey all the time. That there is nothing that the government can say that doesn't contradict God's will and God's rule over our life. Now you've probably met and perhaps you even agree with those who say that we do not have the obligation to pay taxes. Because somehow we are not under law, but we are under grace. And so we do not have to pay taxes. 
Now, the scripture, I think, is very clear from our own Lord's mouth that we are to render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And from Paul's teaching in Romans 13 that we are to give everyone his due. To whom taxes? Taxes. But it is encouraging to know that throughout the history of the church, Christians like us have hated paying their taxes just as much as we do. But we can't hide behind God. We have to be careful. When I said that second point, unless the command of the state contradicts the command of God, but determining that relationship is not always easy. In this case, it's quite clear for Peter and John because the Sanhedrin is commanding them to no more speak in the name of Jesus. Now, I think that would be an easy one for us. The church today is suffering from some more subtle ones. No more preach that a marriage is to be between a man and a woman. No more preach that sexual sins, and I'm lumping them all together because I think the church in our day has singled out homosexuality and has overlooked adultery and fornication as sins that are abhorrent to God. The church has overlooked the fact while we are getting up on our soapboxes about same-sex marriages, what are we doing about divorce? God hates divorce. But the church has little to say about it. And in our own churches, it is winked at. There are things that the government will, in our future, say to us that we will not be able to obey. And when those things come, we must disobey. But I don't think Peter and John, or later Paul, ever went out looking for a fight. It will come to us. If we do as a church, if the church does what God intends the church to do, the fight will come to the church. And then the church will have to seek wisdom to know when to obey and when to disobey. And then courage to withstand the consequences. But the other camp, the other group that we have in the modern evangelical church is the one that wants to, to kind of join with the government. And I think that's even more powerful in our country than those who wanted to simply ignore and disobey those who want to somehow change our country through the government. Those who look to the elected officials to bring about moral reformation in our country. Those who think that a particular candidate is a Christian and therefore I can vote for him or her. And I think their, uh, their, their expectations and their hopes are seriously misplaced, dangerously misplaced. The state, in its history, is a manifestation of the prince of the power of this world. There has never been a Christian nation. Folks, we are not a Christian nation. Many Christians came to this land to find a place where they could worship according to their conscience. Many of them were unwilling to allow their brethren to do the same within their colony. Rhode Island is an example of that. 
Our government was founded by men who were incredible statesmen. A group of men that this world has never seen at one time in its entire history. Men who studied political theory, men who understood the nature of God, though not the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. They were not, to a man, Christians. Many of them were not Christians at all. Our country is not a Christian nation. It is a nation in the world, just like all nations throughout time. God has appointed for the United States, as he has for all other nations, its time and its boundaries. That is in God's hand. He has caused us to live in this nation, as he says to Uh, As Mordecai says to Esther, you have been raised up, we have been raised up for just such a time as this. And therefore, it cannot be a solution that we look to the past and try to find an era and bring the principles of that era and that culture and that relationship into our own. It won't work. But there are principles that we must follow. Peter gives us the basic understanding of our relationship when he quotes, starting in verse 25. He says, Why did the Gentiles rage? Literally, why did the nations rage? This is Psalm 2. And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed. Peter goes on to to exegete this prayer. And he says that the kings, those are the Romans, and the rulers, well, that's the Sanhedrin, those are the Jews. And they conspired together. And this passage, Psalm 2, brought to us here again by Peter in Acts chapter 4, this gives us the backdrop of the life of the church in the world. The nations continue to rage. The rulers continue to conspire against the Lord and against his anointed. And we, who are the body of Christ, the manifestation of the kingdom of Christ, will at times suffer the persecution of the state. But what we will never do is to Christianize the state. We will not make the state, we will not make the nation, we will not make the government a theocracy. It is our responsibility to live as Jesus told his disciples, as witnesses of his grace and glory within a wicked and unbelieving generation. And certainly our generation is wicked and unbelieving. We live in a unique country and a unique time. Our freedoms, our liberties are truly unheard of in the annals of human history. Our ability to influence our government through elections, which, by the way, is not as great as we like to think it is, but nonetheless, it's there. Our ability to assemble, our ability to to say things against our government, and the incredible restraint. I don't know if, if any of you watched any of the live footage from Charlottesville. But it is amazing how restrained. I I know there's a lot in the news about policemen shooting unarmed people. 
But by and large, considering what they're up against, considering the firepower they possess, the fact that you can be watching two sides of an issue, throwing water bottles at each other, kind of surging against each other, and you're thinking, this is going to turn nasty very quickly, where are the police? I don't see the police. They're all there, but they're hiding. They're restraining themselves. We have a wonderful blessing in this country. There's no doubt. And so it is very easy for us as Christians to think that, that ours is a Christian nation because we recognize that it is the gospel that has brought such enlightenment, such pacifism, such restraint to our land. So as biblical Christians, we should be the best of citizens. Even in the second century, men like Justin and Tertullian were writing to the emperor. I don't know if he ever read their letters, but they were addressed to the emperor saying that Christians are, are not seditious, they're not treasonous, they are in fact taught to be the best of citizens, to do their work as unto the Lord, to give obedience to the civil magistrate so long as conscience allows. Christians should be the ones who are exemplary as citizens, exemplary as workers, exemplary as neighbors, but most of all, just as citizens, we ought to be the best. And yet we must always remember that we are citizens of a different kingdom. That we are but aliens and sojourners and exiles in this land. We may have a driver's license. We may have a birth certificate. We may have a passport that allows us to move about this land with freedom. But our citizenship is from heaven. Our king is Jesus Christ. Not the president of the United States not the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, not the Governor of South Carolina or the Mayor of Greenville, but Jesus Christ. And so it is a dilemma that we face, the dilemma of Christian nationalism, the dilemma that every believer faces, in the United States at least, and I think around the world, and that is the natural inclination of loyalty and patriotism to one's homeland and one's fundamental commitment to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And there are times in our individual lives and as a church that those two very powerful emotions will come into conflict. When we are asked to do or commanded to do by the state what we cannot do. But as we are living in this exile, we have those words that Neil read last time from Jeremiah 29. A words I think that represent not only what God intended for Israel in exile, but what God intends for all of his people who live as exiles in whatever culture God has providentially placed us. Jeremiah 29 verse 7. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. The word welfare there is the very familiar Hebrew word shalom. Seek the peace, the wellness, the overall health, the shalom of the city 
to which I have sent you as exiles, Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, the United States. This is where God has sent us, for he is sovereign over us, causing us to be born in this land, in this age, to seek the shalom of the city in which we live, because in its shalom you will have shalom. In its peace you will have peace to pursue worship of the true God, to preach the gospel, to see others added to the church daily as they are saved. But remember, the historical example of Babylon is very important to us from the side of the state as well. Because the state or the city will not always seek the shalom of God's people. It was in Babylon that Haman raised up that great conspiracy to eradicate God's people. It was in Babylon that Daniel, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that Mordecai, that Nehemiah lived and ministered and often suffered. They are examples to us. As we wrestle with how we are to live our faith out in an unbelieving world, we must understand that the world will not become believing for us. The world will not become accommodating for us. That in fact, if we maintain integrity of our faith, the world will hate us because it hated him first. And Jesus says that in the world you will have persecution. And Paul reminds us that all who would live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And so we look to Daniel... We look to the three young men, we look to Mordecai and to Nehemiah, and we see men who served in the highest reaches of the Babylonian government and yet were persecuted. God gave them the grace that they needed. In other ages of the church, those men who lived according to the faith, God gave them to grace, the grace to sustain martyrdom. But in no case... Did any of these men compromise? They did not try to change the government, nor would they compromise their own faith. So when the world says, you may not speak in the name of Jesus again, we must say with Peter and John, you be the judge, we cannot help but speak. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would grant us wisdom to know when we are to obey and when we are to disobey. We ask that you would grant us the grace to live as exemplary citizens in this land, to be witnesses of the grace of God that has been poured out into our hearts through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would grant your church boldness as you did in Jerusalem that you would fill her with the Holy Spirit, that she might boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation and truly the only way of moral reformation in any culture. And God, grant us the fortitude and the steadfastness to endure ridicule, to endure being mocked and marginalized, and even if it be your will to endure persecution and death, for the name of Jesus Christ. 
We earnestly ask that you would strengthen our brethren in the world today who are facing death for the name of Jesus Christ. Give them the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, we ask, for your glory and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and for the building up of his church, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand to receive the benediction. Exhortation, rather, from Paul in Colossians chapter 4. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Amen.